You remember from the second chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew how the wise men came from afar and then they returned to their home. And I read beginning in the 13th verse. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled saying out of Egypt did I call my son underline fulfilled and out of Egypt did I call my son. The message will be out of Egypt. I want you to use your imagination for just a moment. Picture a crippled man sitting here and picture him at the front door of the church. Can't walk. And so men and women are going in and out of the church to worship. And two men come along and see him sitting there begging for money. And one of the men, named Peter, looks at him and says, We don't have any money. Silver and gold have we none, but what we do have, we're going to give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he reached out his hand, and he and John lifted him up. The man wanted money, but what he needed was legs. The man wanted a handout. What he needed was a hand up. Did you get what you want for Christmas? A more appropriate question. Did you get what you need for Christmas? Because man's wants are not always his needs. Paul said, God will supply all your need. All of it. Through Jesus Christ. And so I'm here this morning to endeavor with the help of God and the prayers of God's people and the work of God's Spirit to announce to you that God has three gifts for you under the tree of life.
The wise men came bringing him three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And he has three gifts for you. He exchanges gifts with you today. He has three gifts for you for anyone wise enough to trust him and to follow him. He has three gifts for any of us here today. Regardless of who we are, irrespective of who we are, whether we're religious or moral or good, he's He's made a list and he's checked it twice and he's given to everybody whether they've been good or nice. Everyone wise enough to trust him, he has three gifts. The first one is the gift of salvation. Surely, surely. Anyone that's lived any length of time at all has had life, has had the course on Life 101. If you finished Life 101, you ought to know without any preacher or anyone else telling you that all of us have sinned. We've not all sinned alike, but all alike have sinned. It may have been internal, it may have been external, it may have been moral, it may have been ethical. May have been sins of the flesh, it may have been sins of the spirit, sins of the attitude, it may have been things we did we shouldn't have done, or things we should have done and didn't do. The list is limitless. We all know that we've sinned. Socrates said that his mission to the young men of Athens was to lead them from unconscious ignorance to conscious ignorance. That's what education's supposed to do. And that's exactly what God wants to do is to lead us from unconscious imperfection to conscious imperfection and thereby lead us to the tree of life where we can find the gift of salvation which is there for us. They announced it. They told Mary, you will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Some of you are familiar with the phrase, the Roman road, where you talk about the book of Romans and show through there from selected scriptures how that book marvelously written, that theological treatise, leads us to Christ. Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now, death is not something God sends upon the world because of sin. Please understand that sin carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. The judgment is not something external that God throws upon it in a form of retribution. Sin carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. The very nature of it is to kill the person. The wages of sin is death. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. You know the next step on the Roman road? Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23 is all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Did I miss it? It's the early service, so give me a break. 
Romans 3.23 is all the sin and comes short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. Listen to that word gift. You can't earn a gift. If you earn it, it's not a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're not saved by being good. We're not saved by being moral, as fine and commendable as those attributes are. We're not saved by joining the church. As helpful as that can be, if we do know Christ, we're saved as the result of God's gift to us. But you know, no one can make you take a gift I could hand you the keys to a new car and say, here is a new car. Here is a gift. But if you don't reach out and take them, you never get the car. Not because I'm not giving it to you, but because you won't accept it. Here is the gift of life. Here is the key to life. It's a gift. Open it and find life. Clovis Chapel, one of the most beloved preachers of America and particularly of the South, tells a poignant story about the, the Christmas in his hometown, little hometown in Tennessee. It was a small little community and they'd all get together in the church to celebrate Christmas. They had a big Christmas tree and one of the Citizens of the community would play the role of Santa Claus, and they all had gifts under there for each other. And uh, it was a happy occasion in the little church, and Santa Claus was prancing around, giving everybody their gifts as their name was called on the package. And there was one great big package there, bigger than all the rest, and it just remained. All the other smaller gifts were being given, and that big package just stayed there. And everybody with large and ever-enlarging eyes gazing at that big package, wondering, is that for me? Is that for me? And Santa Claus went over there, and on that big package, the biggest of all, was the name of a handicapped boy, mentally handicapped boy in that community. And they called his name. And his little eyes had more light in them than usual. But there was not much there normally. And his eyes got big and sparkled and he looked at that big gift and it was for him. And so he clumsily started tearing the paper, opening the box and reaching in and pulling out the paper, pulling out the paper and pulling out the paper and pulling out the paper. And somebody... As Clovis Chapel said, they played a dirty trick on the village idiot. They'd given him an empty box. That's cruel. No one in this room, I, I can't think of anybody who would do something like that. But I know people who 
who continue giving themselves empty boxes. Empty boxes. You keep opening them. The word of Isaiah could apply to such people. Why do you keep on working for that which doesn't satisfy you? Why do you keep rummaging around in the papers of life and miss life? It's a gift. It's a free gift. And it's for you. And it's for me. The second gift is for anyone and everyone wise enough to follow the Lord. The second gift is his companionship. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm going to be with you always through thick and thin, through the ups and downs of life, through, as Ron mentioned before he sang, the roller coasters of life, the peaks and the valleys. I'll be with you through the whole ride. I'll be with you for the whole trip. I can imagine somebody saying, Bugner, you do not understand. You do not understand how I live in the world I live in. I, do, do you understand, Button, the world we live in? Do you understand our climate? Yeah, I saw the headlines of the paper this morning. Wasn't it wonderful? We broke the homicide record in San Antonio for 19, in 1992. Yeah, we live in a bad world. Say, so, boy, if I'd only lived back there when Jesus lived, it would have been easier. No, it wouldn't have been at all. If anything, it might have been more difficult, much more difficult. The world was as bad then, maybe worse in some instances, than it is now. You walk down the streets of Rome in Jesus' day, two out of every three persons you would meet was a slave. Two out of every three persons on the streets of Rome, a slave. Poverty was widespread because of wars and because of taxation. Taxation due to the extravagance of leaders. There was overpopulation. They didn't have enough land to provide the food to feed everybody. There was a lot of hunger. And you had a man on the throne that signed his name to a decree and the whole world shook. Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. Everybody had to move to go to the town of their birth, of their fathers, for a census. And you had the very epitome of evil on the throne in Palestine. His name was Herod the Great. And about the greatest thing about him was the evil in his life. He was a contemptible, despicable, heinous, con horrible character. 
He was a man who tried to build an empire on the blood and bones of people. Unfortunately, he was not the first, nor will he be the last of people who've endeavored to do the same thing, either empire builders or business builders. Building on the bones and blood of people. He was a horrible man. Uh, He had his uh, wife's grandfather killed, John Hyrcanus. He had him killed. And then he decided to kill his wife, Mary Ann. Then he decided to kill her two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. Then he decided to kill his oldest son, Antipas. And then he had 40 people burned to death because they had the audacity to tear down one of the eagles' symbol, a symbol of his power. And then from his deathbed, he sent a decree that all of the nobles of the community who had come to visit him in his illness would be killed when he died so that there would be mourning in the land because he knew that no one would mourn his death and so he had all of those innocent people killed when he died. And from his deathbed, he was the one who issued the edict that all of the children in Bethlehem under two years of age would be killed. That was the kind of leadership they had in Jesus' day. It was tougher then. Because of him, Mary and Joseph and Jesus became displaced persons. They were uprooted. And they had to go to Egypt. I don't have the time, but I'd like you just to think through very quickly in your own mind even though you may not be very uh, uh, familiar with the life of Jesus. They went to Egypt and then came back and went to Nazareth, worked in a carpenter's shop, a lot of poverty. Apparently his earthly father Joseph died and he became the head of the household. Uh, For 30 years, until he was 30 years of age, he, he worked there in obscurity. And then he started his ministry. He uh, had pockets of popularity. Had a few people approve and follow. But most of the influential people of the day tried to get rid of him and finally did. He, he, he never seemed to appeal much to the, to the aristocracy of the day. Uh, they... It required more humility than they could muster to follow him, apparently. And unlike most of the reformers of the world, nearly all of them, uh, he didn't begin at the top and work down. That's Plato's concept of how you change the world. Uh, You begin with the leadership. You begin with the folks at the top and you you advocate a kind of trickle-down morality. Now, Jesus was a grassroots man. He began with people. That's why he's the greatest revolutionist that ever lived. 
the greatest revolutionary that ever lived because he began with people. Began with all of us, ordinary folks. But he was despised by many, rejected by most, even his own family, his closest friends. He knew what it was to be alone. He knew what it was to weep at night. He knew what it was to pray all night. He knew what it was to cry. He knew what it was to die. But God was with him intimately and personally through every experience of his life. Now listen, I do not know what Egypt you and I will be in this coming year, but we will be in some in varying degrees in a variety of areas. But all of us have our Egypt. We've had some in 1992. For some of you, it's been deeper and darker than others. Maybe you've been uprooted as that little family was uprooted and had to move. Maybe you didn't have to move from one home to another, though you may have had to do that. You may have had to move from one job to another. You may have had to move from one standard of living to another. Jesus understands that. God understands that. He had to do the same thing. The gold the wise men brought him was finally spent. You may identify with that. Maybe you've been in the Egypt of a broken heart. You've wept over something you cared greatly about. Your home, your husband, your wife, your children. Maybe the home is broken and your heart is broken. Maybe you've prayed all night and you don't seem to hear an answer. Like Jesus, you've had your Gethsemane when there was no voice from God, only darkness. But God has promised that He will be with you in your Egypt. Why? Because four times, and here's the heart of what I want to say to you, four times 
in Matthew's gospel. He uses the word fulfilled. God has a purpose. God has a plan. It may not appear logical to the people at the time. It may not be that which they desired at that moment. But certain things happen that it might be fulfilled, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, that the plan of God might be fulfilled. Caesar Augustus had no idea that he was being used by God. He signed a decree for political purposes that God ordered for the fulfillment of prophecy. That's how Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem. That the prophecy might be fulfilled. Babies slaughtered, Herod on a rampage, holy family going to Egypt, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that out of Egypt I have called my son. Back to Nazareth. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Babies slaughtered. That God's ultimate purpose might be fulfilled. Listen, listen carefully. God doesn't close his accounts at the end of the month. But at the end of time... God settles his accounts. And it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. Herod died. Judgment. Augustus, Caesar, died. Judgment. God's sovereign will will not be thwarted. God's ultimate purposes will not be derailed. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. My dear friend, listen. As you and I move into 1993, looking back, to 1992. Do you know why you and I are here today? Do you know why we've made it this far? Because God's been with us. That's why we're here. God has been with us. He's brought us out of Egypt. And He will be with us to bring us out of all of the Egypts of the future. And he will ultimately and finally and triumphantly bring us out of the Egypt of death. O oh, death, 
where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, right? And the strength of sin is the law, right? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory out of Egypt through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, Paul writes, you be steadfast. You stand on the promises of God. You be steadfast in the fact that God's will is not going to be thwarted and God's purposes are not going to be derailed. He will keep His word. Therefore, you stand fast, dear brothers, knowing that your labor for God is not in vain. For someday, He will stand upon the earth and all knees will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we'll sing hallelujah. We're out of Egypt. That's your gift. Take it. Open it. Salvation is yours. His presence is yours. The fulfilling purposes of God are yours. Accept it by faith. I stand here to welcome you into the life and fellowship of His church. come into the life of this church to move your membership to be a part of the people of God as we move from Egypt to the promised land. Come be a part of the pilgrimage. Come join the throng as on to glory we go. Come in rededication of your life on the eve of this new year with the promise of a new life. A quick word, resolutions won't do it. I believe the only good thing about resolutions is that they remind us we never keep them. It's not a resolution we need. It's a revelation we need. For the power of God to be with us. He will, if you're wise enough to follow him. I believe you are. Then do it this morning. Let's stand and let's